The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we, we come to this passage, these two chapters, and they're stunning and we pray that you would that you would thrill our souls with what awaits your people we pray that you would use this vision of the new creation to fill us with anticipation and to look forward to that new creation where we will dwell with you in an intimacy that we've never known. And so we pray for your help. We pray not only would you help us to think right thoughts, but we pray that you would help us to have right affections, that we'd long for the right things. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. They are many. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. In Christ's name, amen. So we finished uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, which was, of course, the final judgment, often called the great white throne judgment. And now we get to the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And it's pretty exciting, really, when you think about um, these two chapters are are bookends. And we're going to see that the last things are like the first things. If that's the only thing you remember from tonight, that's fine. The last things are like the first things. So as we come to this text, first of all, um, the passage that I just read, verses 1 to 8, 
we have a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and the full realization of the new covenant. And what's going to happen is, so you've got those first eight verses, but then in 21.9 through 22.5, you end up having a recapitulation that is a rehearsal of everything that was in 1 through 8. But by now, since we've been studying the book of Revelation for I don't even know how long, all right, I don't keep track of those things, but one of the things that we find is that is that there is this, um, this recapitulation that happens repeatedly through the book. So you end up having uh, verses 1 through 8 that give us all of these themes. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, in a sense, new covenant, new people. And then what's going to happen is 21, 9 and following, we're going to focus on the new Jerusalem itself, in 21, 9 to, 20, uh, 9 to 21. And then we're going to look at the new temple in 21, 22 to 27. And then in 22, 1 to 5, we're going to see the new Eden. And so the last things are like the first, all right? Then we get to 22, 6 to 21, and that's going to be the epilogue, which is the formal conclusion of the book. And I would say that what it does is it bookends um, really uh, chapter 1, 1 to 3, all right? And so you actually have a really nice um, bookend in, uh, in the book of Revelation. So we come to this, this glorious theme of the new creation, right? And the new creation obviously follows the first creation, which is now the old creation. So the new creation is, is the new order. It's established by God through Jesus Christ. And what it does is that new creation is a new order which replaces the old order. And we'll talk about what that old order was. By the way, that old order, if you want to know what it is, it's just it is sin, death, and corruption. Okay? That's the old order. That's what this present world is is marked by. And so the new creation replaces that old order. And then the church in the new creation is now glorified and perfect. So how does Revelation start in terms of the church? Chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. How many of those churches actually were, were exemplary churches that had no criticisms? Only two. Five out of the seven have significant criticisms against them for their compromise, right, with this present world system. You, so, so the church on earth is always going to be imperfect, immature, right, hopefully growing, but it's going to have, there are going to be parts uh, in it that are tainted with compromise with the world. There are going to be parts of it that are tainted because uh, it is imbibing the spirit of the age. And so the church militant is always 
in a sense, the church handicapped. You get to the new creation, and the church is, is now, it, the church is what the church is supposed to be. It's perfect. It's complete in Christ. And in fact, it has gone from being the church that is, that is slogging through this wilderness existence, and now it has gone from the church militant to the church triumphant, and as the church triumphant, it is the church glorified, it is the church perfected, it is the church that is actually now prepared to live in a new heaven and a new earth without sin. And just tell you, that's awesome. So the themes, Revelation 21, 22 are clear, right? So you've got the new creation. That new creation is now identified with the holy city, the new Jerusalem, right? We're going to see that place and people are the same now, okay? But then that new Jerusalem is also identified as the pure bride. Now, the minute I say the pure bride, right, she's coming down, the new Jerusalem is coming down from God out of heaven as a bride prepared or adorned for her husband. The minute you hear bride, you actually should be thinking of a contrast. New Jerusalem, right, purified, glorious, is the, is the, is the positive counterpart to Babylon, which is the wicked city, right? And the wicked city was identified as what? A harlot. Now, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is identified as a pure bride. So, in a sense, you have a tale of two cities, you have a tale of two um, brides, okay? And so, this is part of the beautiful, powerful contrast. And so, the new creation is also going to include the new Eden. It's going to be the new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new covenant, a new people. And so, you can think of it this way. What's going to unfold for us in Revelation 21 and 22 is that the, the, the new creation is where the theology of Eden, temple, promised land, find their ultimate consummation. All right? Is there a theology of the Garden of Eden? It's actually a garden temple where Adam was supposed to do what? Live with God, commune with God, worship God, be the priest who cultivates and protects the garden. Where sin enters into the world. But the garden was where God was supposed to dwell. So then you go to the Old Testament uh, people of God... Israel, and now they are brought out of Egypt through exile, but they're wandering in the wilderness, but God actually promises to do what? To dwell with them. He's going to dwell with them in a similar way, not exactly the same, similar way as he had promised to dwell with Adam. And how is he going to dwell with the people of Israel in the wilderness? Through tabernacle. 
He's going to pitch a tent among them and dwell among them, right? And then, so, so you've got theology of Eden, theology of, of the land, theology of the tabernacle, later theology of the temple. All of that is going to find its ultimate consummation in Revelation 21 and 22. And so that first creation, the e- and Eden and the land, point us to what is to come. Right, so when does um, when does eschatology start in the Bible? Well, Genesis. Okay. Eden is about eschatology. When um, when Adam is told that uh, he's not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that he eats it, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. What is the implied corollary? If he obeys, he lives. But that life that he would have lived was not just the ordinary life that he now had in the garden. It pointed to, you could, you could say it pointed to a number of things. It pointed to an eternal Sabbath rest. It pointed to some sort of eschatological future for Adam, right? Well, of course, that gets cut off. But, but does, the, does the idea of Eden die? The answer is no. Repeatedly through the prophets, what's one of the promises is that God's actually going to restore Eden. When is God going to restore Eden? God's going to restore Eden in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? So what you see in Genesis 2 and 3 is, are the first things, but the first things point us to the last things. Right? By the way, you could do this through the whole Bible. All right? So, the last things are like the first. Um, The new creation is where the theology of the first Adam and the last Adam find their consummation. First Adam is, of course, Adam. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. So, the first Adam does what? He loses paradise. Right? I mean, under Adam, it is... Truly, paradise lost. Christ comes as the last Adam and comes and in his work of redemption, what does he do? He not only redeems a people for himself, he redeems the cosmos. We're not talking about... So, so Daniel's actually touched on this in, in Colossians. When Jesus comes to redeem... Don't think that, that, the, that the extent of redemption is just simply the forgiveness of your sins. The redemption that Jesus Christ brings is not just the forgiveness of your sins, it's also going to be the redemption of your body. In fact, your redemption is not complete until you get a new body. Why? Because that's part of what Jesus has accomplished in redemption. We saw this in Romans chapter 8, right? So, so what is the redemption of, uh, of our body? It's adoption as sons. In other words, it's the consummation of our redemption being brought into the family of God, being conformed to the image of God's firstborn. How? Not just in soul, but in body. You get a resurrected body. By the way, if you were to drop dead tonight and you believe in Jesus, you'd go, 
Straight into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But in Paul's words, you would be in a state of nakedness. You were not created to be without a body. You were not created to be a disembodied spirit sitting on a cloud, plucking a harp, floating along aimlessly in the outer space. You were created to always be a body, soul, person. You do realize that for all eternity, the Son of God is now a body, soul, person. And if the goal of your redemption is to be conformed to him, then the redemption of your body is part of what Jesus does in his redeeming work. But it's not just the redemption of your body, it's actually the redemption of the entire cosmos. So where in the world would you get that idea? Well, from the Bible. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. So what is the ultimate purpose of God's good pleasure? It's this. This, These are the words of Paul. To sum up all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things upon the earth. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. uh, Christ accomplishes reconciliation right through the blood of his cross But what does it say about that reconciliation? It says, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so there is this, there is this glorious sense that what Jesus is doing is he's not just redeeming souls to go to heaven forever. He's redeeming humanity. He's redeeming what it means to be human. And by the way, there is no humanity apart from physicality. Okay. And physicality is designed to live in the world that God created. Oh, just keep that tucked into your noggin for a second. God created you as a body-soul person to live in the world that he created. All right, so just to make sure you're all tracking, heaven is not the ultimate goal. Just let that sink in for a minute. Okay. It is a new creation that is the ultimate goal. Okay? A new creation. And so, when Jesus Christ, the last Adam, returns, what does he do? He makes a new heaven and a new earth. All right, so if this hasn't shocked you yet, then let me, let me try again. This present world is not going to be discarded. Okay? 
This present world is not going to be discarded. It is not going to be thrown away. In the words of um, Herman Bovink, it's going to be cleansed of sin, recreated, reborn, and renewed, made whole. Okay? Okay? So what we're talking about, and you go, well, why, why would you think that? Well, just bear with me. I know this is a long introduction. When you die and your body goes into the ground, you're going to be eaten by worms. In the words of Genesis 3, from dust you came to dust you will return. Okay? Right? When the resurrection happens... What's going to be raised? Your body is going to be raised. In one sense, it's a new body, but in another sense, it's the self-same body. In other words, by the way, it's patterned after Jesus' resurrection. The same Jesus that went into the tomb um, did a different Jesus come out. Same Jesus came out. Um, Did a different body come out? Same body came out. The exact same body? No, it's resurrected. (laughs) It's glorified, right? So can I say there's going to be a dissimilarity between the present body that I have now and the body that is uh, future resurrection? And and I'm going to say absolutely, and I sure hope so. I mean, if you want to get stuck with this body that you got right now for all eternity, um, th- there's, there's a beauty to the resurrection of the body and the glorification of the body, but it is the same body. You see what I'm saying? Right? It's the same stuff. The same stuff that goes out of the ground or the same stuff that gets eaten by a shark and ends up being shark droppings on the bottom of the ocean or the same stuff that ends up being um, blown up in an explosion and your particles are spread all over or the same stuff that gets buried under the apple tree. The apple tree gets its roots into you. Uh, your, your, Your molecules go up into the apple tree. The horse comes and eats the apple. Then the horse goes 100 yards off and drops a horse apple and so, is, is God actually able to reconstitute your body? Absolutely. So, the very same thing that happens to your body at the resurrection happens to this earth. It, 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 will, be, it will be, in a sense, the old is going to pass away, right? So, there's a change. It's going to be melted down. That is, it's going to be purified. It is going to have all that which is wicked and corrupt removed from it. But then God is, in a sense, going to resurrect. Why? Because it is important. Well, by the way, great book right here. Bible in the Future, Anthony Hokema. Hokema makes this comment. He's talking about why it's important that we have a doctrine of the new earth. He says, the doctrine of the new earth is important for a proper grasp of the full dimensions of God's redemptive program. In the beginning, so we read in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Because of man's fall into sin, a curse was pronounced over this creation. God now sent his son into this world to redeem that creation from the results of sin. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals, not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-bought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God is ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost becomes paradise regained. We need a clear understanding of the doctrine of the new earth. Therefore, in order to see God's redemptive program in cosmic dimensions, we need to realize that God will not be satisfied until the entire earth has been purged of all the results of man's fall. So, That brings us to verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So, when it says new heaven and new earth, the word for new, there's two words for new in, in Greek. This word is not Naos, which is new in time. It's kainos, which is new in quality, new in essence, not new in time. So the new creation is not like the old creation in that the old creation was created ex nihilo. You know what we mean by when we say that? That the old creation is created ex nihilo. That is, it's created out of nothing, You had nothing, God speaks, brings it into existence. The old creation is created out of nothing other than the word of God's power. But the new creation is actually a recreation, a resurrection, just like our bodies. And then John says the first first earth had passed away. So the first earth, the first world, if you will, passes away like our bodies will pass away. The first world, the first creation, the first order is absolutely corrupted with sin. Right? What's the evidence that this world's corrupted with sin? Death. Romans 5.12. Right? Death is evidence that this world is corrupted with sin. Matt? Matt? Okay, sin, all right, sin. Is there any sin in this world? Okay. There is more sin in this world than, than you and I can even imagine. There's more evil in this world than you and I can even fathom. This world is absolutely corrupt. It is absolutely tainted, and it is taint, it, more than tainted. It, it, has, it has the cancer of sin woven through every structure, every fabric, every corner, every cranny of creation. Right? Is this... So we sang How Great Thou Art tonight, right? And rightfully, we glorify God by seeing his handiwork in the creation. But is not this world itself fallen and corrupt, 
by sin? And the answer is, yeah. I'm fallen and corrupt by, by my own sin. Sickness. Disease. Disformities. Right? Birth defects. Things that rip your heart out. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world that is filled with misery and woe. We live in a world that's filled with trials. Is there any joy in this life? Of course there's joy in this life. And you know, you've, you've been around long enough, I think that you need to maximize that joy to the glory of God to the best of your ability with the gifts that God gives. You enjoy, you enjoy the gifts of God in this fleeting life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And so there is joy in this life. But at the end of your life, if you were able to quantify the joy and the sorrow and put them on scales, what do you think would outweigh the other? The sorrows are going to outweigh. The tears are going to outweigh. The woes and the miseries and the trials are going to outweigh all of the joy. That's one of the things that makes the joy so wonderful. Is it is it is a it is a uh, a mitigation to some degree of the misery of this world, and it gives us the hope of something better to come. Right. So, e- by the way, even joy in this life is eschatological. It looks forward to something bigger, looks forward to something better. And so, um, when John says that first earth has passed away, there's coming a time when, when all of the woe, the misery, the corruption, the sin, the evil is going to be no more. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The former things being the sin and the misery and the woes of living in a fallen world. You might ask, why why a renewed creation? Because that's what I'm saying is, when he says, behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the first earth passed away, what I'm saying is, is that this is a renewed creation. So why a renewed creation? Why, why a restored earth? Why not, why not just, just completely start over? Right? Herman Bovink, who was an old Dutch theologian, All you got to do is go to his Reformed Dogmatics and read his chapter on the consummation. It's beautiful. Bavink says this. He says, only such a renewal of the world, for that matter, accords with what the Scripture teaches about redemption, which is never a second brand new creation, but a recreation of the existing world. Now listen to this. God's honor consists precisely in the fact that he redeems and renews the same humanity, 
the same world, the same heaven, and the same earth that have been corrupted and polluted by sin. In other words, it is to the honor and the glory of God, not that he throw away as a failed project the first earth. If 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 that was the case, if it was if it was a matter of God saying, "Okay, you know what? This whole thing, what a dismal failure. Um, we, we tried this project; it didn't turn out the way that I thought, and so now I'm going to throw it away, and I'm going to do it all over again." Right? This, this is not, um, you know, this is not me trying to do some some woodworking project, right? Where I start, I totally mess it up have to go to Home Depot 16 times, and, and what I end up with is not what I started with. Okay. Then I just call Daniel to come over and cut a straight line for me. Okay. It is to the honor and glory of God that he not allow sin to have the final word in the destruction of this present world. You do understand that if God started over, if he, just, if he just trashed the first creation, sin would have won. By the way, Satan would have won. God is a God who redeems. And so when Bavink says this has everything to do with the honor of God, it most certainly does. And in fact, not just simply the honor of God, the honor of God in Jesus Christ. Because how does he bring about this renewal of this creation? He brings it about in his son. So Jesus Christ is not only the center, but he's the circumference of the entire new creation. There is no new creation apart from the consummation of this present world in Jesus Christ. Okay? So, some of you love C.S. Lewis, some of you don't. But he had this right. Last battle, right? Chronicles of Narnia, some of you have heard of it, all right? So all the kids are, are now in the new Narnia. It's hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you'll get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or, or a green valley that wound away around the mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass, a mirror. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the mirror. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more places, more like places in a story, in a story you've never heard but very much want to know. 
the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. And so then the unicorn comes in and he stamps his right forehoof on the ground and he cries, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. The re- <laughs> this is it right here. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The last things are like the first. Only better. More beautiful. More glorious. More satisfying. More colorful. You think you know what blue looks like now? Wait until the new earth. If you think mountains are beautiful now, wait till the new earth. Not only will there be a recreated world, it will be a recreated world without one remaining spot of sin. Now, I know Ariel is at work, but she's listening. And she's going to cry when I read this part. And there was no longer any sea. Ariel grew up on an island. If you want to know why the front of our house looks like a beach, a beach in the high desert of Nevada because she grew up on a little island that was three miles by seven miles in the Caribbean. She loves the ocean. And so she's going to be glad when I say that the sea represents something here. So Greg Beale says, in Revelation, the sea represents, first of all, the origin of cosmic evil. By the way, there's an Old Testament background to that. And so you have, um, we'll actually look at a couple of texts, but where does, where, does, where does the second beast come from? He comes up from the sea, right? Um, he says, the sea represents the unbelieving rebellious nations who cause tribulation for God's people, right? What, what are the wicked likened to in Isaiah 57? like the tossing and foaming of the sea. Um, The sea is actually also the place of the dead. Revelation 20, the sea gave up the dead. Um, He goes on, he says, the sea is the main arena in which the world's idolatrous trade takes place. Revelation 18, 11 to 19. And then, of course, it's a literal body of water that's a part of the old creation. And then Beale says this, he says... 
The use here is likely a summarizing statement about how the various nuances of the sea throughout the book relate to the new creation. Therefore, it encompasses all of the five above meanings. That is, when the new creation comes, there will no longer be any threat from Satan, threat from rebellious nations, or death ever again in the new world, so that there's no room for the sea as the place of the dead. There also will be no more idolatrous trade practice using the sea as its main avenue. Now, as I read, there will be no more sea. I understand the, the, the theological significance of saying there's no more sea, right? There's no more, there's no more wickedness. There's no more sin. There's no more rebellion. There is... Um, there are no more enemies that will rise up against God's people, all right? But I think that maybe, just maybe, um, Ariel might have a lovely place by the sea in the new creation, all right? If I'm wrong, she'll learn to love the mountains. All right, new heaven, new earth, first pass away, no more sea, verse 2, and I saw... The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So we're introduced to the New Jerusalem all the way back in chapter 3, right? In, um, I think it's the letter to uh, Philadelphia and chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I'll write, on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So the one who overcomes, right, that's the one who perseveres all the way to the end, he ends up doing what? Actually having God's name written on him, and he is a part of the new Jerusalem. And so that's, that's the only explicit reference until you get here. Beginning, the new Jerusalem, anticipated. Here, new Jerusalem, fulfilled. You ever read the book of Isaiah? Okay. We actually took seven years to teach you the book of Isaiah. Okay. It's where Matt and Suzanne were converted. No. <laughs> Lots of people came during Isaiah. It was seven years. Uh, <laughs> you read Isaiah, you read it slowly, and guess what Isaiah is subtly and not so subtly all about? Well, Jerusalem. The whole book begins, chapter 1, with Jerusalem as what kind of city? A corrupt city. An apostate city. A city that should be worshiping God but is an idolatrous city. So the Jerusalem of Isaiah chapter 1 is an apostate Jerusalem. Then you get to chapter 2, and there's this picture of Mount Zion and the nation streaming to Mount Zion to actually come and to, uh, to, to worship God and to receive his law. So all of a sudden, there's, you go from this apostate Jerusalem, all right, so bear with me, apostate Jerusalem, to a, now um, a reversal where this Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, is now the blessing of the nations. And so right out of the gate in Isaiah, you've got this, you've got this tension. So how in the world do you then 
end the book of Isaiah. How does the book of Isaiah end, 65 and 66? With a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. You think it's any accident that you start with an apostate Jerusalem and you end with a new Jerusalem. How do you get to that new Jerusalem? You get to that new Jerusalem through the work of the servant, the suffering servant. He's the one who does what? Who redeems Jerusalem. So when we get to, when we get to uh, Revelation 21 and verse 2, we are now looking at that which was prophesied by Isaiah, not just in 65 and 66, by the way, um, 55 to 66, you have multiple references to a renewed Jerusalem in which there's going to be justice and righteousness and the people that are going to be there are actually going to be upright people, right? So unlike the Jerusalem of Isaiah chapter 1, you get to Revelation 21 and all of a sudden you now have that which was foretold by Isaiah, that which is anticipated uh, all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 12, now you see it consummated. In other words, in a sense, just just like we read in, in the last battle, this is what you've always been looking for. And what is it doing? It's coming down out of heaven. So, so John, and by the way, this is going to be even more stunning when we get a little later into chapter 21. So John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And so is there bride and groom language in Isaiah 55 to 66? And the answer is, yeah, all over the place. In fact, God's going to actually rejoice as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And so there's this wonderful sense where the new Jerusalem is the bride of Yahweh. And now John actually sees So the first garden, Adam had a wife, right? In the new creation, the last Adam has a bride, a church. So the city is the people. In fact, what we have is people as place, which that's not new to the book of Revelation. You see it in terms of uh, Zion theology in the Psalms and the prophets. People and place actually come together. And so this new Jerusalem is a part of the new creation. In fact, you could say that the new Jerusalem is identified as the new creation. And who is she? What is she? She is the redeemed beautified people made spotless and without wrinkle as a bride prepared for 
her husband. She's the bride of the lamb. She's washed in his blood. She's clothed in white, cleansed from every spot, cleansed from every wrinkle, adorned with his righteousness and with his glory. And as she comes down, there's almost this, this wonderful sense where just as, just as God presents Adam uh, with Eve, right? He brings Eve to Adam and there's this wonderful sense where this, this bride is coming down from God to be given to his son. And she's beautiful. She's stunning. Your eyes are transfixed on this bride who has been made beautiful not because of herself but because of the bridegroom who loved her and gave himself up for her. And so the last things are like the first. You have a wedding in Genesis 2. And you have a wedding in Revelation 19, but then also 21. So absolutely magnificent. She's about to be joined to her groom to live together with him in intimate communion forever. She's been prepared for this. So, As we've studied Revelation, how has the bride been prepared for this? Through trial, through tribulation, through persecution, God has used all of those things to purify this bride for his son. And so as the church suffers in this world, as the church endures hardships in this world, as the church is persecuted in this world, you have to understand that none of that is lost. It contributes to the preparation of the beauty of the bride. Glorious picture. It'll get better, by the way. It'll get more explicit. But here's one of the Wonderful things that we need to remember. Jesus died for his bride. The father is preparing that bride. And one day the father will give that bride to his son. And he will love her forever. You know what that means? Don't make it your hobby to badmouth the church. I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about the church. Don't make it a pastime to be the critic. Right? Because you got a whole group of people that say, love Jesus, ah, not too crazy about the church. What in the world is the new creation all about 
It is about preparing this bride for her husband. So if you come up to me and you say, you know what? I think you're awesome. Don't do this, by the way. I would I'd fake humility and all of that. If you came up and said, you, you're awesome. I love spending time with you. I get, I, I get so much. I mean, I feel like just being near you, like by osmosis, I'm like getting like goodness. All right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then you turn around and you go, but your wife, nah. What'd you pick her for? Whatever your flattery might have done to my proud heart, I might punch you in the face. Right? You go, well, that's not very godly. Um, You probably should read the Psalm 139 again. (laughs) All right? All right, yeah. Don't you think Jesus actually, in a sense, feels the same way? That's my bride. The Father's preparing her. The Spirit's sanctifying her. She's not perfect now. There's a lot of things that are wrong. Error needs to be identified. All of that is, is, is true. But you be careful how you talk about my bride. She's being adorned for her wedding day. And I love her so much that I not only laid down my life for her, I've created a new heaven and a new earth for her to dwell in forever. I only got to two verses. It's pretty good stuff, right? Gives you something to look forward to. So if you woke up this morning and you're like, man, my back hurts. Or you try to walk to the bathroom. Never mind. (laughs) You get a headache. You go to the doctor and they tell you, oh, your cholesterol's high. Or you hear terrible news that breaks your heart. It's part of the woes of this present world. And those are passing away. There's coming a time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and none of the things that marred this first creation will even exist. In fact, isn't it in, um, I'm not a Lord of the Rings guy, but doesn't um, Sam Ganji ask Gandalf or, something about something, and he says, that's where, basically, is that where 
all the sad things become untrue. That's the new heavens and the new earth. All the sad things become untrue. What a day we have to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we, we realize that we, we completely deserve to just be a part of this old creation that passes away and goes into darkness through judgment. But how we thank you that by your grace you've made us part, Lord, of a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. We thank you that you've made us a part of the new Jerusalem. We're the bride of Christ. Father, may we, may we cherish that more than anything. And may it comfort us in the dark nights of the soul. And may it encourage us when we're on the brink of despair. Lord, just to know the first earth is going to pass away. Everything's going to be made new. And so, Father, we look to that day with great anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.